Here's something I never thought I'd say. A gay man is running for president. That's a shocking and historical fact. Now, I live in LA, but I'm a Southerner. I'm from North Carolina. And when I go home, I still leave my skinny jeans in LA. I'll take off my nail polish if I'm wearing any. I'm just aware of how queer I'm presenting. And it's something that I think a lot about when it comes to Pete Buttigieg. He is one of the first openly gay people to run for president. My name is Pete Buttigieg. They call me Mayor Pete. I'm a proud son of South Bend, Indiana, and I am running for president of the United States. I want to know how he and his team are going to be navigating this as he campaigns in more conservative areas. And I also just want to get to know him as a person. He's a millennial. He's a veteran. He met his husband on a dating app. That is an equally important historical first. So today with Pete, we'll be talking about all of this and more. From Luminary Media, I'm Jeffrey Masters, and this is LGBTQ and A. I want to start with your military service, if that's okay. You were a naval intelligence officer and served in Afghanistan. Yeah. At that time, don't ask, don't tell was not the law of the land. Right. And yet it seems like if my timeline's correct, you were not out of the closet. Right. Yeah. So uh, don't ask, don't tell was in effect when I joined the military in 2009. But by the time I was deployed in 2014, it had been repealed. Um, that being said, it, it wasn't exactly uh, uh, obvious that the military was a gay friendly environment. But things were changing. I mean, you, you knew things were changing. Um, you know, I came out like everybody does, I think, when I was ready. You're kind of ready when you're ready. And it took me a very long time. When were you ready? When was that time? Well, I made sure to, I sort of came out to myself somewhere in my 20s and made sure to tell at least one friend before taking office because I thought this is a thing in your life that you need to kind of have a handle on before you accept uh, serious public responsibility and uh, worked up the nerve to tell a good friend. And his first response was uh, kind of pat me on the shoulder and say, you know, you, it doesn't seem like you really made it easy on yourself, um, by which he meant my professional choices, right? So the two important things in my life by then were um, political office in Indiana and uh, services in, in the military, both of which at that time were completely incompatible with being gay, or at least that's what we thought. Yeah. When you say it might, the military wasn't the most uh, friendly place yeah. for queer people, um, how did you see queer people being treated? Well, there's just a lot of kind of casual homophobia in the way people talked. A lot of it actually probably more unthinking than vicious in its intent. Um, but it's just kind of the conversation, right? Oh, you know, this uh, uh, this email count came down from the command. That is so gay. You know, like stuff like that, like middle yeah. school stuff. That's just kind of part of how people talked. Um, probably still is to some extent. Um, but the other thing that, that I also felt very strongly over there was that um, nobody really probably cared that much because, you know, we learned very quickly to trust each other based on whether you could do the job, right? I mean, talk about a case where all you care, somebody's getting in my vehicle when we're going outside the wire. I don't care if I'm going home to a girlfriend or a boyfriend, right? They want to know that I studied the intel reports on where the explosives might be and that I know how to use my weapon and that I'm going to keep them safe. And so I think, you know, in many ways, I, I wish that, um, 
preferably not by going to war, but I wish that more Americans had that experience of just learning to have to trust other people with radically different backgrounds. Well, how you describe that in the military, it seems like the same argument could be made for why it doesn't matter if trans people serve. Yes. Did you serve with any trans people? Not that I knew of, but okay. uh, uh, you know, if I did, yeah, it wouldn't have mattered, right? I need to know that you know how to do your job, that I can trust you. Uh, and if you can serve, then you can serve, yeah. especially given that most people are not willing to step up and do that. Uh, I can't imagine that we would exclude competent people uh, who are prepared to put their lives on the line to defend this country. Are you surprised that President Trump is legally able to disbar this many trans people? He's kicking out 13,700 people from the military? Yeah, it's shocking. But then when you think about it, a lot of Americans would probably be surprised to know that uh, you can still be fired in most employers uh, for in most parts or many parts of the country, right? In the absence of federal uh, civil rights protections for being any part of the LGBTQ world. Um, it's why the Equality Act is, is so important. And I'm glad that uh, we're taking another run at it in Washington. Absolutely. You said that when you served that the flag on your uniform, that it meant something. It meant trust in terms of you and your country. And that is something that has been erased with the current administration. I want to know, how are you going to begin to rebuild those relationships abroad, but specifically as a queer person? You're going to be doing it in places that are hostile to LGBTQ people like yourself. Yeah. Well, I think part of that has to do with just what America means or can mean in the world. I still believe that the American model compares favorably to any of the others. There's a moment right now where there are competing models, right? The Chinese model um, is kind of being put forward as uh, a convincing competitor to the American way. The Russian model, which to me is basically capitalism without democracy, which quickly becomes oligarchy. Um, but in some ways, that model has flexed some muscle too, not to mention the Saudi model. Out of any of these alternatives, I still think the American way is the way to go. And I think most people think so too. In other words, one of the things that I think kept me safe when I was overseas is that there were more people in the countries I was in who wished they were American than the other way around. But we're losing that. That's fading. And part of what we need to do at home and abroad is reassert the kind of moral authority that has made America a model, a lot of which has to do with democracy and a lot of which has to do with pluralism. But I, I'm curious how you're going to exert a moral authority in a country where it's illegal to be gay. Yeah when you're the coming in to lead that conversation. Yeah, it's gonna be a challenge, no question. But um, it's one example of why it's so important for America to be credible, right? So if America were unquestionably credible, then when a, a gay uh, ambassador or a trans president or whoever it was showed up in even the most anti-gay country, um, they would kinda have to at least have a conversation with you because they would be engaging the country that leads the world. And there's something that just comes from that. Um, and in the same way that as mayor, I was able to enter some environments that are not the most queer friendly. Um, but by virtue of the fact that I was mayor and that I think I did a good job, um, was able to sort of be invited into those places, um, met with a certain level of goodwill, and then build more of that goodwill around our desire to serve before uh, or, or desire to prosper as a community um, before it comes to any of that stuff. I agree. I, and I mentioned queer people abroad, but right here in America, it is still not a safe place for queer and trans people. 
there is a lack of acceptance. And is that part of your internal discussions and your campaign of how forward your queerness can be as you begin to campaign in more conservative areas? You know, we try not to overthink it very much. Uh, I mean, in one, many ways, one of the most conservative things in my life is uh, my family life, right? I, I have a very uh, kind of ordinary American home life. Uh, I got a spouse and a couple of dogs, and, and uh, uh, it's something that I think most people can relate to. It's just that my spouse is a man. Uh, and so I think there's actually an opportunity by, um, in a way, inviting people to treat us like they would any other couple kind of the way we have in South Bend and just see what happens that more people than not will respond that way because um, I find, and this is true of a lot of out groups, that we're just worse to people when we regard them as a category than when we encounter them as people. Don't get me wrong. We can be awful in person too, but on average, for the most part, I think it's harder to hate from up close. And when people engage you as human beings first, and then realize that you're part of some category that's been othered or some category they've been taught not to like. It puts them in the mode of questioning where they were coming from just as much or more than it puts them in the mode of questioning you. Totally. And I agree with that. Although, um, as a personal example, I am from the South and I don't know if I would feel comfortable holding hands with my partner walking down the street. To be clear, I don't have a partner. We can talk about that later. <laughs> I've seen your wedding photos. You have some very attractive friends. So, um, but very seriously, if I was uh, working for your staff, I would have to question, is it okay for Pete to kiss his husband at this campaign rally? Right. Yeah, I mean, these questions were raised when I was uh, in my re-election campaign, too, because I, I came out um, during the re-elect. That was just the moment I hit in my life when I was like, all right, I got to do this so I can start having a personal life. And, uh, you know, Mike Pence was still governor then, and I was on the ballot. Um, and so we asked ourselves kind of what effect will this have? How do we handle it? But I very quickly realized that I, I just had to be who I was. And uh, it's too much work to try to be someone else. Um, and so we just trusted people. And the amazing thing is, for the most part, that trust was vindicated. People who... Um, maybe even people, people of an older generation who are struggling with joining us on the right side of history. Um, at its best, I think they felt better about themselves for kind of inching our way. I mean, I remember the example that's always on my mind is someone who I'm pretty sure was a little more conservative woman of a certain age, saw me soon after I was dating Chaston and, and kind of said a little, a little bit mischievously, like, oh, I met your friend and, and he is wonderful. And like that could have been a moment to like talk about the difference between like a friend and like someone you're dating. Um, but that was her way of signaling that she was moving in the direction of acceptance and she felt good about herself because she was. And so part of what we were able to do and part of what I think we might be able to do nationally is to help people realize that they are better selves when they are in the process of supporting and honoring uh, who people are as their authentic selves in the queer community. You mentioned Chastin, your husband. Yeah. I think that you would be the first president to have met their spouse on a dating app. Yeah, I'm sure that's true. You guys met on, was it Hinge? Hinge, yeah. If it was Grinder, would you tell me? <laughs> Probably not. Okay. But it was Hinge. I respect that, actually. <laughs> who messaged who first and what'd you say? Oh, um, I think I started it. Um... I don't remember. It's unfortunately, it's kind of lost to the, lost to the ages uh, through some app update. But the do you think he would remember? 
That's a good question. I'll ask him. Okay. Um, I bet it was me, but I'm not sure. Um, but he responded. I could tell right away he was he was not like the others. He was pretty witty. We were talking about Game of Thrones. We were talking about. I was laid up, uh, um, and uh, um, recovering from an injury, and so um, I had a lot of time. <laughs> I was kind of hanging out on my phone, and uh, I just I could just tell by the chatting that he was somebody special and that I wanted to meet him. I love that. How long into dating did you tell him that you might want to run for president one day? <laughs> um, so he often talks about, I don't remember this as well, but I believe him. He mentions that on our first date, he, he was a little skeptical about getting mixed up with a politician. And he asked, you know, what, what does your future look like? And I told him what would have been the truth at the time, which was, I'm up for re-election. I hope it goes well. If so, I'll get a second term. And if that second term goes really well, um, then I may get a look in 2020 for running for statewide office, maybe even governor. And uh, and so he reminds me of that now when we talk about you know, the crazy life that we have, because um, I don't think any of us could have guessed even a year and a half ago uh, that this was where life would take us. And I like that you admit that you're an underdog. Yeah. Right. Um, it's important for look. It's, it's it's important for people to know that we're in this to win this, and that I see a path. It's also important for people to know that I'm not stupid. I, I get the audacity of this, right? I get where we're coming from. And so of course it's an underdog project. But looking at the landscape, there are people with resumes like Joe Biden and name recognition like Kamala Harris, my senator. And I just looking at the landscape, I want to know why did you decide to run to take on not one giant but twelve. Well, I don't view it as taking on any of the others. I don't think that I have opponents so much as competitors. And frankly, coming from a position like mine, you're not competing with any one of them so much as you're competing against the house. Um, the idea is that I have something to offer that's just different than the others. It's not something wrong with any of the others. It's just different. Um, I don't think we have enough voices in our party that come from uh, the so-called flyover country or forgotten communities, places like the industrial Midwest where I, where I live. I don't think we have enough voices that are from grounded in local government. I mean, it's unusual, right? Usually you expect somebody to be in Congress, for example. Um, I'm not so sure that marinating in Washington for, for a long time is, is the best thing to prepare you for um, national executive office in these times. And I don't know that, that um, we've seen enough voices from our generation stepping forward onto a national stage at a moment when our generation is the one that has the most at stake. I mean, the longer you're planning to be here, by definition, the more you have to gain or lose by the decisions that are being made. It's why I'm always talking about the world as it might look in 2054, which God willing is the year that I get to the current age of the current president. And uh, when that is a personal question, what's the world going to look like? Not the theoretical thing, but like, what am I going to do then? Then I think it just gives you a sense of urgency. And so I think the Democratic voice, the Democratic Party needs a voice that's that kind of millennial Midwestern mayoral voice that uh, um, that nobody else can bring. And I don't think it's necessarily productive to compare every young underdog politician to an Obama-like figure, as the news tends to do. And yet, like Obama, you are an incredibly symbolic candidate. And I just wonder, is there anything from the Obama playbook that you are stealing? Um, and I ask that knowing that David Axelrod, his campaign advisor, is a friend of yours. Yeah, one thing is that, uh, you know, I think he was somebody who understood the historic nature of his candidacy 
and also found a way not to let that completely define him. And I think about that a lot. I know it means a lot as the first out queer person to, to get this far in this process. Um, and I also know that it's important because I think what success looks like is that it would not be newsworthy. Um, I think it's important to kind of run our own playbook that's not as the queer candidate, but just as a, a good candidate who happens to be queer. Uh, and finding ways to neither shrink from nor uh, uh, kind of depend on that or any other element of my identity, I think is, is something that he did very well. Um, and, and something I think that, that anybody else from a minority group thinking about how to um, manage these questions of identity and policy and presence in the national field uh, can learn a lot from. And yet you said earlier you're not overthinking this. There is something symbolic that like is the antithesis to Trump being a veteran, a gay person, and a millennial. That is exciting that and unique, like you said. We talked about the world and being here in 2054, I think was the year you said. Yeah. One of my biggest concerns besides like queer and trans rights is global warming. And I think I speak for a lot of millennials yeah, in saying absolutely. that. Yeah. What is the biggest, boldest thing that we need to be doing? Well, our generation is going to be on the business end of global warming for the rest of our lives. Uh, and I think it's actually the, the starkest example of intergenerational justice being something that we ought to take seriously in our politics. Because you got a lot of decisions made up to now and even today as though this were someone else's problem. Um, so I'll tell you substantively in a minute some of the things I think would help. But, but politically... One of the things I think we need to do is just change the imagery and the vocabulary around climate change. So one thing I think a lot about is what, what if you close your eyes and picture the uh, cable news B-roll, when there's a story on climate change, what are you going to see? It's probably uh, chunks of ice in the Arctic, maybe a polar bear. Um, and I'm trying to shift that to our neighborhoods. So my mental B-roll for climate change is Fredrickson Street in South Bend, the night of a historic flood. Uh, it was a thousand year rainfall that came to us one August night. And I was with this family trying to figure out what they're going to do because their home had been destroyed or at least was uninhabitable the day before the first day of school. And I thought to myself, this is climate change. That was a thousand year rainfall. And 18 months later, we had a 500 year river flood. So these changes are upon us, and it's true when parts of California catch fire, and it's true when Florida cities are dealing with sea level rise. Um, it's one of the reasons why I think the Green New Deal is the right kind of framework to look at. Admittedly, more of a goal than a plan today. Sure. But it correctly identifies that, that this is a crisis with the destructive power of a war or a depression. It's upon us. And so we need to mount a commensurate national effort with everything from uh, some kind of carbon pricing. Uh, you, I don't think that this will it'll work without it um, to major R&D investment in renewables. And we need to start today. Yeah. I tell you, go I have one more question. Yeah. For me in 2016, I think it shined a mirror up to our country. And we it was impossible to ignore how racist and sexist many parts of our country are. And knowing that do you think that our country is capable of voting for a gay man for president? Well, there's definitely a lot of ugliness out there. Uh, we've seen it, uh, as you said, especially kind of brought to a head by 2016. Um, but these things need to be tested um, because the only way we make progress is to um, 
have America rise to one of these tests. And so there's a certain amount of personal risk in being part of the test. But the honest answer to your question is that there's only one way to find out. Is now the appropriate time to test it when we're trying to remove this person currently in the office? It's got to be. I mean, if not now, when? We need to put forward something that is completely different, the opposite of what we've got right now. And we can't be afraid of what we are, who we are, or what we believe in. Um, Politics at its best is being who you are in the cause of what you believe. And every time we've tried to do something else, we've regretted it. Every time we've psyched ourselves out by trying to uh, focus on electability rather than what we thought was right for the country, we wound up getting neither. So let's have a conversation about where America needs to go, not just in this election, but in the next era that I think is largely going to be decided based on this election. And let's put forward real human beings and challenge voters and challenge our, our neighbors to judge us based on what we have to offer them, not based on some complex of prejudices that uh, not only we, but also they would be better off without. Thanks for talking to us. Sure thing. Enjoyed it. And that's our show. We'll be back next week with a super fun interview with Roxane Gay, who is one of my personal favorite writers. Stay tuned for that. LGBTQ&A is brought to you by Luminary Media, The Advocate, and Ann Hum Media. We are produced by Zach Stafford, Gabrielle Horton, Jonathan Hirsch, Isabeth Mendoza, and myself, with sound engineering by Tyler Barton. We'll see you next week.